As you've heard already, today is Mission Sunday, and this is a chance for us to focus on our mission as a congregation, and especially our intention to contribute to the well-being of Lancaster City and the wider world. In line with this purpose, we have chosen to participate in the Jubilee USA Network of Congregations, and so this is an opportunity to look again especially at this theme of Jubilee and what it means to us. In our Sunday school lesson last week about God's call to Moses, I was struck by Dan Eptison's comment that it was quite revolutionary for God to be seen as caring about slaves. Typically, the literature and the art from the ancient Near East presented the gods as supporting the status quo. In fact, Kings were often understood to be sons of the God who ruled on his behalf. So it was quite different to think of God as noticing those who were at the bottom of the pyramid and who was paying attention to their cries for help. It was quite unusual to think that God actually wanted to rescue these slaves and lead them out of Egypt to freedom. Of course, we know that movements for liberation can become oppressive and simply turn the tables upside down, reproducing the oppression that they wanted to change so desperately. And indeed, that did happen later in Israel's history, especially after they adopted the kingship model for themselves. Yet there were many years when the people of Israel managed to envision and craft some policies and some practices that were designed to guard against oppression and exploitation. One of these was the Jubilee year. This was a periodic redistribution of land so that those who had lost it due to debt or other calamities could start over. And those who had become slaves or indentured servants would be set free. Surely it must have been a joyous occasion when, as we heard in the passage from Leviticus, the leaders would proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. And everyone could return, every one of you, to your property and every one of you to your family. In a real sense, this directive was a concrete way to express their belief that God alone was their king, and God alone owned the, owned the land. Human beings were then stewards or caretakers who could lease the land, but it would never be theirs to exploit or own forever. It was interesting to me to notice that this jubilee announcement was to be done on the Day of Atonement, the day when everyone would confess their sins and receive God's forgiveness. So this very social, economic, and political practice was connected to God's promise of forgiveness and a new start. The negative effects of debt and misfortune could be erased. Poverty would not be passed on from generation to generation, but there would be a periodic leveling of the playing field. Truly, this was an inspiring vision of great hope and especially for those who knew very well the terrible consequences of slavery and what it meant to live in a land where there were huge disparities in how resources were distributed. 
This was one of the ways that they tried to build a society that was more equal, more fair, where there would not be a permanent upper class or a permanent underclass. Nevertheless, it was not perfect. As we heard in the story from Numbers 27, not everyone was included in this remarkable plan. In that situation, there was a family who was almost left out of the picture completely, without any land to start with at all, the family of five sisters, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Tirza. To review briefly, the people of Israel were about to enter the land of Canaan, and they were sitting just across the Jordan River from Jericho. Moses and the leaders had taken a census of the people, so they would be prepared to divide up the land and decide how much each tribe and how much each family would receive. Yet for the family of Zelophehad, for these five sisters, it looked like they would get nothing. In that time, only men were counted, only men could inherit land. So it appeared that this family would not get any of the inheritance or any land because the father had died and there were no sons. It's also important to notice that this happened shortly after a major conflict between Moses and a rebellious group led by a man named Korah. As punishment for rebelling against Moses, the earth had opened up and swallowed several hundred people, and a plague had killed many others. So the people were very afraid, afraid to come to the tabernacle. They were afraid something terrible would happen again and they could die. And so now we have these sisters come forward and come to the tabernacle and stand right in front of Moses and the rest of the people, asking that they be given a portion of land too, along with all the other families. I find it amazing that they did not try to go to Moses privately or through an intermediary, but they spoke about their concerns right out in the open in front of everybody. No doubt it was a very dramatic moment as everyone strained to see what these women were doing. One imagines that many were thinking, who are these women? What on earth do they want? How could they even think of approaching Moses this way? But there they stood and they said, our father died in the wilderness He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died for his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. As I think about these sisters, I have so many questions. I wonder who first came up with this idea and how it came to her. I wonder how the other sisters responded and how long it took them to decide to go ahead with this plan. I wonder who protested the most and thought this was an absolutely hopeless, crazy, even dangerous request. I wonder which one of them spoke first when they stood before Moses and if all the others spoke too. I wonder which sister I would have been. 
Would I have been able to stand tall, at least as tall as I can, (laughs) or would I have tried to hide behind one of the other sisters, which I can do? (laughs) I wonder what other women in the crowd thought as these sisters made their case. Were they nodding in agreement, or did they think these sisters had gone just too far? And what did the men think? especially those who might get less land now if this family got their fair share. Perhaps you have other questions as you try to imagine yourself in this situation. And perhaps you can discuss these over lunch today. Remarkably, Moses did not laugh or get angry or dismiss these women. There was no earthquake or bolt of lightning. Rather, Moses listened to the sisters, and took their concern to God. And God affirmed their request, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad are right in what they are saying. You shall indeed let them possess an inheritance among their father's brothers and pass the inheritance of their father onto them. But God went even further. God did not just give a one-time exception to the rule, but instructed Moses that this should now become standard practice from then on. As verse 8 says, if a man dies and has no son, then you shall pass his inheritance on to his daughter. Given the times, this was truly remarkable. In fact, it was so significant that these sisters are mentioned four other times in the Hebrew scriptures. Of course, we know that women still did not have equal rights with men. And unfortunately, this is still true in some places today, many, many centuries later. And for those of you who are watching Downton Abbey, you know that even in 20th century England, not that long ago, daughters could not inherit their family's property, even when there were no sons. So while this provision was limited, it was still quite progressive and way ahead of its time. What I find inspiring about both this story and the Jubilee passage is that there was, first of all, a vision of fairness and equality that the Israelites tried to put into practice. They didn't just say that they believed in a God who cared for everyone, but they attempted to live it out in very specific, concrete ways through a year of Jubilee. Secondly, they were also open to new understanding of continuing to seek God's will and make adaptations as new situations came to their attention, as this one brought by Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Tirza. Admittedly, many scholars question whether these jubilee rules were ever actually practiced in Israel. But even if it was not, the vision remained. As Isaiah 40, verse 4 expressed, The hope and goal of God's reign was that every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Again and again, prophets rose up to challenge injustice and call people back to God's concern for those who are poor, enslaved, or dispossessed. And even worship in the temple could not substitute for doing justice. And as we saw in our reading, as we heard today uh, in the reading from Luke, Jesus also embraced these themes. 
Drawing from Isaiah 61, Jesus declared that God's spirit had anointed him to bring good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, and to proclaim the year of God's favor. It's important to note that the word to proclaim is the same one used in the Jubilee text, where the leaders are told to proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. And the year of God's favor refers to God's acceptance, God's cancellation of debt and offer of forgiveness. And truly, this was a message of great hope for everyone, but especially for those who had fallen on hard times and blamed themselves for their troubles. No doubt, many felt that their poverty, their servitude, and the loss of their land was due to their sin. Here, Jesus is proclaiming that just like in the year of Jubilee, they would be freed, their debt canceled, and their sins forgiven. This is what God wanted for them and what, God, and what Jesus tried to make real in his ministry. Indeed, Jesus sought to rebuild a broken and disheartened community in the midst of great violence and oppression caused by Roman occupation and a temple system that had allied itself with Rome and grown very wealthy at the expense of most of the population. By contrast, Jesus welcomed people, ate with them, and healed those who were ill in mind and body. And he promised God's love and forgiveness without the need for burdensome sacrifices and temple ties. Truly, he set people free from the systems that told them that they were unclean and that led them deeper into debt and dispossession. Along with urging people to trust in a loving God, he offered real-life practices for restoring people to fellowship and community. He offered an alternative vision that was inclusive and egalitarian, the vision of Jubilee, a vision of level planes rather than social pyramids. So what does all of this mean for us today? It can seem like our situation is far removed from what the people of Israel faced or the daughters of Zelophehad or from what Jesus faced during his time on earth. Yet, We know that there is increasing attention being given to the widening gap between rich and poor in our own country and a growing sense that working class and poor families are losing ground. In fact, in Monday's newspaper, Paul Krugman quoted the Ohio Governor Kasich as saying, I'm concerned about the fact that there seems to be a war on the poor. What's even worse is that our society tends to blame those who are poor or view this as an individual problem as if they haven't worked hard enough or made the right decisions. And while this is undoubtedly often true, there are also many policies and practices in our society that make life very hard for people, no matter how hard they work. Barbara Ehrenreich makes this very clear in her book, Nickel and Dimed, on not getting by in America. Some years ago, she tried working at several low-wage jobs in different locations around the country, to learn what she could about what so many experience on a daily basis. I won't go into much detail, but what she describes continues to haunt me about physically exhausting and even damaging work, demeaning and demoralizing treatment by her bosses, and the stress of trying to find food and housing she could afford. Something is wrong, very wrong, she writes, 
when a single person in good health, a person who in addition possesses a working car, can barely support herself by the sweat of her brow. Of course, we as a congregation have worked hard to address some of these needs, but I often ask myself if I am willing to look more closely and try to understand more deeply why so many people in our, in our community are hungry, why so many cannot afford adequate housing, and why so many end up homeless on cold winter nights. What are the systems and the policies that make it so hard for people to access what they need? Is it because people are not paid a living wage, or because they lost a job when a child got sick and there was no provision for sick days? Or are there lending practices that take advantage of people? What role does racism play in making it hard to get a job or access a good education? And why do women often earn less than men, even while they are also expected to care for children or other family members? I find these to be tough questions that can seem overwhelming. How does one even start to address these larger systems and policies? Or should we even try? Is this part of our vision as a congregation as we seek to contribute to the well-being of Lancaster City and the wider world? Yet I am encouraged by the five sisters, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Tirza, who looked at their situation and were able to say, this isn't fair, this needs to change. And Jesus, too, who looked at what his people faced and called forth repentance and change. And so I ask myself, what do I see today that seems especially unjust? What especially calls to me, this isn't fair, this needs to change? Even further, is there a root cause which a group of us might try to address together? Are there ways we could partner with others? What would a jubilee year look like today in our neighborhood, our nation, our world? As we consider these questions, let us not be discouraged or overwhelmed. Let us take inspiration from the vision of Jubilee. Let us take courage from those five brave sisters who spoke up honestly and sought justice for themselves and their family. And let us continue to follow Jesus. May his message sink deep into our hearts that the gospel is good news for the poor. There is freedom for those who are oppressed, and God loves and accepts each and every one of us.